everybody's talking at me I don't hear words they're saying Only the echoes of my mind People stopping staring I can't see their faces Only the shadows of their eyes I'm going while the sun keeps shining Through the pouring rain Going well the weather suits my clothes Banking off of the northeast winds Sailing on summer breeze And skipping over the ocean like a stone Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Talking Movies. I'm Max. I'm Tim. And episode five. Here we go. You can, now you can count them all on one hand. Well, I mean, I guess you could before, <laughs> but you can count all the way to the thumb. Those of you who happen to have that many digits on a hand. Yeah. Sorry for everybody. the unfortunate few out there missing a digit. I'm sure they exist. They're probably not listening because I don't, I don't know of anyone. I imagine people and listening right now at this point in time, like... At five episodes, yeah. If we're lucky to even have any listeners, <clears throat> um, they're probably people that we know. I'm assuming someone's listening. People are liking it on Facebook from time to time, and <laughs> I'm assuming that they listen and they like it. But if they're not and they just like it to be nice, that's, you know, thank you, too. Not that you'll They might like the you. idea that it exists. Yeah. And that's cool. I like the idea it exists, too. But I like doing these. They're fun. It's like when I was little, the show David the Gnome, I never really liked the show, but I liked that it existed. David the Gnome? I don't know that show. Uh, I would always get really excited when it was coming on, and I'd watch the opening credits, and then the actual episode would start, and it was like, oh, well, I'm glad it's on, but mm-hmm. I'm going to walk away. But I'll get really mad if anybody changes the channel. But I... Not gonna actually watch it. David the Gnome is on. Yeah, <laughs> I thought you weren't watching it. Well, I wasn't, but I love David the Gnome. Why aren't you watching it? I don't have to. I love it enough. You love it being on the TV. Yeah. Just so Midnight Cowboy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So we're talking about Midnight Cowboy. And from... um, I, while watching it for the first time in a while, I realized that in the last episode. When we were talking about Deliverance, and uh, you were like, I can't think of any other movies from before that time when it showed a, it has like male, a male rape. rape. And I was like, no, I can't think of any either. And Oddly technically, enough, there kind of is a suggested. Uh, yeah, which no. I never, I didn't think I picked up on until this viewing. And it was only because I had read a review that explicitly said, like, oh, yeah, he and his girlfriend are having sex, and then a bunch of locals attack them and rape both of them. And then she's sent to an insane asylum, and he joins the military. And, I mean, that's all there, in bits and pieces scattered throughout the yeah, movie Yeah, you kind of have to piece that together yourself. But for some reason, I never got that he got raped. I did this time. Mm-hmm. Um, but And I also, I was reading reviews like earlier today after watching it uh, late last night, and, like, some of 
the reviewers at the time were like, oh, he's like held down and forced to watch her get gangbanged. That's mm-hmm. how they were saying it. Which like and, you, you could view it that way yeah. and see that that's how it is. Like, but there is a shot like where it's specifically like they're you pulling see, like, his legs, their legs apart. Yeah, you see his legs being yeah. open. Um, so yeah, I think it's pretty. And, and just, you know, in the dialogue. Well, <laughs> I think it's pretty. John no. Boyd's got nice legs. <laughs> I mean, he is a very pretty man. Yeah, no, that's what a big part of the movie is, I think. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, I think it's pretty apparent. Yeah. But I kind of changed my <laughs> train yeah, of thought right. and just left it at pretty. Um, there's nothing pretty about rape, folks. No. <laughs> um, nothing funny about it either, goddammit. Um... Oh, and and I think like you know it's it's implied like throughout the the dialogue later in the film, well not later but like later in his uh, in his life I guess, in in all the scenes in New York, this sort of question about his sexuality or his sexual orientation, yeah, um, and the kind of like almost violent reaction that he has to the idea of sort of being called gay or the question of it being come up um, when he's with that girl it's not so much a violent reaction but it's like a uh you know when they're playing scribbage yes um he's definitely struggling with that whole notion and yeah so i think it's it's it definitely i mean he was definitely i don't think it's very ambiguous Mm. but yeah it's weird how for some reason, I don't even know why, because I'm the one who suggested after watching Deliverance, like, oh, you know what? It kind of reminds me of movies like, you know, Midnight Cowboy, which also has John Voight. So I guess like that's probably what reminded me of it. But it's also a British have, director making a a Hollywood film about yeah about America, you know, America, which is what you kind of yeah. suggested before. Like, why not do you know British filmmakers making films about America? So yeah, it's interesting how it kind of it did end up falling into some sort of weird theme somehow. But this was my first time watching it and I actually just finished watching it um, about an hour ago at this point. Um, so it's still pretty fresh in my mind. I've got that Nielsen song still stuck in my head. <laughs> Which I I knew that, that, that it, the song was, was in the movie. But I didn't realize how uh, prolific it is in the movie. Is prolific a word? I don't think it is. <laughs> what, am I, what am I trying to say? I know what you mean. <laughs> prevalent? Prevalent. That's what I'm... Prolific. I don't know where prolific came from, know. but prevalent. Yes, that's the word I meant to say. It's very prevalent in the movie. Um plays a lot yes i thought it might just be like you know one of those sort of end credit type deals or opening credits which it is in the opening credits but it keeps popping up and that was um one thing that like when i was reading reviews again um i think it was an ebert's review from that time um 
he sort of complained about that, saying like, oh, hopefully we'll get over this whole, you know, the graduate thing where they keep throwing pop songs into movies all the time. And it's like, he has no idea what he's in store for over the next few decades. <laughs> like, if he thinks Midnight Cowboy is like full... And like, a lot of the songs in it, with the exception of Everybody's Talking At Me, um, like, they... They're just you know they're like in the fi- in in the diegetic world of the film like right, you walk like, by, the, like in the party there's yep, a lot there's of songs a, playing yeah, and songs like in bars party, and yeah. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But I guess and it uh, does have its own score too. Yeah, John Barry. Did John it. Barry, who um, was responsible for the original uh, James Bond theme. Which uh, of the first of Doctor No, or do you mean like the, yeah he like, he composed the original. Um, Music for Doctor No, which is you know been reused in all of the other James Bond. How does that movies. go? You know. Okay. Thank you, you. You've never really seen James Bond movies. Have no, you? I've never seen a James Bond movie, but I do know that music. I just okay. wanted to have you jog my memory a little bit. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I think he actually composed. Um, the score for multiple of uh, Bond films. I'm I'm pretty sure he did uh, from Russia with Love and Goldfinger. Did he also do the like pop songs that went with? I know like the later ones all had like their specific celebrities brought in to do them. But like, did he do Goldfinger the song? I think he I think he did actually. I think he wrote it with um, the the singer uh, Shirley Bassey. Okay. Um, I think that like he wrote the music and she. Maybe the lyrics. I'm not exactly sure. I first heard his theme for Midnight Cowboy like a few years before I saw the movie itself um, on a, a Faith No More EP. Um, they covered it, and the everybody's was, talking at me. No, or, the or like the actual... like the score, like the the right. The, okay. Da, 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 I can't. Now it's your turn. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, they did a decent job with that on uh, their. I think it was the Songs to Make Love to EP. That's a weird... <laughs> I don't know if I'd want to make love to that. They did. They also it would did, just remind uh, me of the movie and I would just feel uncomfortable. They also did like a frantic like oompa band type thing. I think it was called like Dust Shoots and Fest or something like that. I don't know, but it's like... I don't know. We're a little off topic. Let's get back to Midnight Cowboy. <laughs> Sorry. Well, we're, you know, we're still kind of talking about it. Midnight Cowboy. So this was your... You had seen the movie before and you had rewatched it. Yep. I, um... When I was going to ACC, I took Intro to Film with Professor Cavaluzzi. I can't even <laughs> say his name without laughing. <laughs> um. Yeah, I also had a class with, uh, with Cavaluzzi. Um, and he was quite the character. In the, uh, in the syllabus, he gave us, um... There was just like a list of maybe fifty movies, and we could pick one of the movies to do our like final project on. Uh, but he recommended that we watch all of them. I ended up doing my final project on uh, Wild Strawberries, the Ingmar Bergman film. But Midnight Cowboy was on the list, so I sought it out, and mm. um, that was two thousand two, I guess. I saw that, and. Um, and then I saw it like that was one of the that was like when I first got a DVD player. So it was one of the handful of DVDs I had starting out. So I watched it several times then. 
And then I don't think I watched it again until it came up in a class. I took it purchase a few years later. And then it's been like six or seven years, maybe, before I watched it last night. That's my story of <laughs> my relationship <laughs> with the Night Cowboy. Yeah. Fascinating, isn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, this was my first time watching it. And um, it, it was kind of, I guess, a lot different than what I um, had kind of expected it to be like. And not so much in, like, story-wise, story details, because, like, I didn't really know... I didn't really have any kind of notion of what the story was, but just in the way that like the movie was, was shot, and in particular in the way that the movie was edited, I wasn't expecting that kind of like fragmented. Editing. Yeah, exactly. Very kind of. Um, <clears throat> I like all the flashback stuff and how it was all kind of. You feel like they are these sort of old memories that he only kind of remembers like bits and pieces of, and um, very dreamlike. And even, but even like, you know, it, we often drift into these little daydreams and in these little sort of uh, other moments. I thought it was really great. Did you, um, as far as like the things you were familiar with going in, um, I'm assuming you knew the I'm walking here, I'm walking here moment. Yeah, that is one thing that I did know. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a really famous line. Um, and after seeing the movie, I wonder, like, what exactly about that line made it so famous? Was it just the fact that, like, I, and I had known that, like, oh, you know, it was supposedly uh, sort of this improvised moment that Dustin Hoffman had as he was walking across the street. Allegedly. Yeah, and I get... He I, does kind of break character. It is Dustin right, Hoffman's his, voice. His voice does change, yeah. yeah. Um, so is, like, is that the reason why the the line became so famous, or... I don't know. Because it seems just like such like a, like in everything in the movie, it's, it seems weird to like sort of pick that out of, of everything as like the iconic moment of the movie. Yeah, I really, I really don't know why that's like the moment from Midnight Cowboy that carries over. What moment would you pick to be the, if it had to be represented <laughs> by one iconic moment? I would think the ending. Um it, which well, there was actually, a I, Seinfeld episode. Yeah, and it, I was just going to say, yeah. like, I was kind of semi-familiar with the ending because of, of a Seinfeld episode that ends uh, in a similar way with Jerry and Kramer on a bus. And the only way that, that I even knew that it was a parody of Midnight Cowboy was because I think the song, yeah. Everybody Talking, is in the Seinfeld episode. But so I then first, I kind of put those the, that you know two and two together. When I first saw Midnight Cowboy, I hadn't... Or when I first saw that episode of Seinfeld, I mean, I hadn't heard the song yet. Right, yeah, it was the same with So me. I didn't know, um, like, I didn't realize, like, oh, that's, you know, that's that Midnight Cowboy song. So when I was watching Midnight Cowboy, that was the first time I think I'd heard the song. And, like, when it got to the end, I was like, wait, this is kind of, this is like that episode, oh, wait, what? Oh, cool, <laughs> Seinfeld did an homage to this. Yeah. It didn't, like, take me out of it completely. It wasn't like, oh, I've seen this. But. Yeah, I... I'm, and they've done... I mean, they did, like, the last scene from The Godfather on, the, on Seinfeld before with the um, the circumcision episode with the closing doors. I don't remember that. You know, the last... Um, spoiler alert for those who haven't seen The Godfather. <laughs> um, you know, at the end it shows Michael Corleone surrounded by people who are calling him Godfather. Mm-hmm. And then uh, someone goes over and uh, shuts the door, 
and like the audience sees the door shutting and then it cuts to Kay on the other side of the door right. and it shuts on her, her out yeah. and it goes to black and then the credits roll and it was like um, Kramer had saved this baby from being circumcised so I guess spoilers for those who haven't seen the sign oh yeah oh, sorry sorry about that um, <laughs> and the parents are like oh you actually care about our baby you're gonna be the godfather and the parents are like Kramer godfather godfather and then they shut the door to Jerry's apartment and it cuts to Jerry and Elaine standing there because in the episode yeah. was there sort of like a question of like who the godfather was gonna be well it was supposed to be Jerry yeah I guess. and Elaine was the godmother but then Kramer kind of like Broke you into the those, to the yeah. bris and just <laughs> took the baby. But yeah, now we're talking about Seinfeld. <laughs> <laughs> a fine show in its own right, full of homages to classic cinema. But but yeah, even knowing like um kind like in the back of my mind, sort of knowing uh you know kind of how the end of the movie was. Like I yeah. knew that like okay, both of them wind up on a bus. Um. It was still really sad, you know. It didn't take it yeah. didn't take me out of it at all. Um, it's a very sad movie. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's about loneliness and just these two people who are like utterly alone, really, and they like finally find someone they can relate to, and then one of them dies, and then the other guy's alone again. <laughs> yeah, and I think like. Um, I mean, it, it's crazy. I had never, re- like, I, I know I've seen something with John Voight in it before, but none... You've seen Mission Impossible, right? Right, okay. I was going to say, isn't there a movie where he's, like, o- an older, he's um, you know, older at this point, and he's, like, a... Blues, I think, was the first and he's one like a, uh, he's, like, a villain or something. Yeah, you and, find out, I think, at the end of Mission Impossible that he's bad guy. So, spoilers, <laughs> if you haven't seen Mission Impossible. And apparently, he, in the TV show, which I've never watched, I guess his character was like one of the heroes. So right, because, a lot of the fans yeah, yeah. were very upset that he yeah. was a villain in the movie. But man, after seeing uh, John Voight in both deliverance and in uh, midnight cowboy, I mean, he is a fantastic actor. I mean, and his, the character of Joe Buck is just, uh, so lovable. And I just, you know, you're, you're still drawn to him because he's so, he just has this like wholesome, quality to him and this sort of goodness about him and he's an idiot and he, so you, you he's like, kind of like yeah he's naive and like you know he just it's like a big dumb animal like you just feel bad for him he I, makes these horrible yeah, decisions. yeah. he's not like a bad person I no just he's not like, a bad yeah. person and like uh and then there i mean there's bad things he does at the end when he attacks that man and yeah very likely kills him yeah it's it's very shocking because you're like no not joe buck wouldn't do that not our Joe. Yeah, that was uh, that was crazy. Yeah, I didn't really know what to think about Joe after that, and I don't really know exactly like what the film is exactly trying to say about his character being driven to that sort of point. Yeah, I don't. I don't really know. It's hard, like, that was one of the first things I thought of after finishing the movie was just, like, if I was to sum it up in, like, you know, like, one sentence to describe it, like, to describe to someone, like, what the movie is about, like, I don't really know what I could, what I would really say, because there's a lot going on in it. There's a lot of different themes that it's juggling, a lot of different elements, and I don't really know, uh, at its core, like, what, 
what it really is is all about you sort of talked about like the, the loneliness and these two people kind of like finding each other it really is more about their relationship yeah than it is about you know joe um hustling yeah doing his hustling thing that's sort of in the background i guess even though it is very much like what he's repeatedly trying to do it's not really like what the what the core of it is about but yeah i mean just him being driven to that point to cause great physical harm to somebody and at that point like it's you know he'd already made the connection through um the Brenda Vaccaro character, the the woman he meets at the party, um, to like hook up with like maybe some of her friends and like, you know, try and get like, oh, I've got some customers. I'm gonna be a successful hustler. But, um, Rizzo needs to get to Florida like now. He doesn't mm-hmm. need to, but that you know, it's his dream. He yeah. wants to, he and it's like he needs the money right now, so he can't wait. Just like oh, you know, I'll just have this like, um clientele of affluent women like i just need like one big payoff but yeah i don't think he needed to kill that man and yeah especially i mean like i guess because he he was he could have been driven to that point earlier on in a few different scenes like when he finds rizzo again and is you know as in demanding him his money back um and also the the guy in the movie theater bob balaban like a baby Bob Balaban. <laughs> yeah, he okay, that is him. Yeah. I was like I swear I was like does that look like that guy? He and I recognize him more so from a lot of uh him later in life. Seinfeld. He's on <laughs> Seinfeld, yeah. As was John Voight playing himself in that one episode. Was he in that episode? Where uh George allegedly uh, buys the car that used to be owned by John Voight. Oh, yeah. And then he meets John Voight, and he bites his pencil or something. Right, yeah, yeah. and so then they bring it to the dentist yeah. to try to, like, get it, like, you know, to see if Brian they can Cranston. match up. Who is Brian Cranston, right? Yeah. Now we're talking about fucking bad. <laughs> <laughs> How about that finale, Tim? <laughs> I wouldn't know. Anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, so I know him from like uh like Christopher Guest's uh films. Yeah. Um he's a yeah, he's a great comedic actor. Um, and he um that was I'm not sure if it was his first movie. It's definitely one of his first movies. And uh, his uncle Barney Balaban was one of like the head people at Paramount for decades. And he like so uh he tells this story. I forget where I heard this story, but like, you know, so Bob Balaban is talking to his uncle Barney. And his uncle Barney is like, oh, I, you know, I've been hearing great things about this new movie that you're in. I'm very proud of you. I haven't watched it yet, but you know, I'm really excited about seeing it. And Bob Balaban's like, oh, well, yeah, you know, take your time. Don't you don't have to rush out. And <laughs> and then um, the next time he went to uh, his uncle's office to like, you know, just visit with him, he saw the um, the reels. Like he'd gotten right the film cans like to watch Midnight Cowboy. And they were just, like, sitting in the corner of his office, and um, he assumes that his uncle watched it because he didn't mention it at all, and it was kind of an awkward <laughs> meeting. Because, <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, 1969, like, like there's not, uh, it's a big Hollywood film, and he's, he's blowing a guy in a movie theater. Yeah, which kind of brings us to um, the whole idea that this was a film that was rated X. Yep. And after watching the movie, like, I can't 
understand what is in the movie. Like, there's nothing gratuitous in the movie at all. Like, there's nothing that we really, you know, not a whole lot of nudity, not, like, you know, graphic scenes of sex. I mean, there's, it's all suggested, and it's all sort of, the, you know, it's there, but it's not, well, they're not showing you much. Subject matter. And it all comes down to the subject matter. And I was, I did a little reading, and I guess, like, when the film was initially uh, sent out to be rated by the MPAA, they gave it an R rating. And then, um, I think it was United Artists who, yeah, um, they met with a uh, psychologist who suggested that they accept an X rating because, in his view, because of the homosexual framework of the movie, he was saying that uh, it could negatively influence uh, the young, which is just, uh, it's such a bizarre Because it paints such a glamorous picture of homosexuality, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Young youngsters sitting in the movie theater, which, if even if the movie was R, like, you know, they shouldn't be in the movie anyway. So I don't understand how, how that Well, really... if it's, if it's R, they can go, people under 17 can go in if they're accompanied by an adult, but if it's X... They can't go in at all. I think that was the, uh, the thing. So they're sitting in there with their parents. Right. And they say, <laughs> wow, when I grow up, I want to be just like Rizzo and, and Joe Buck. Yep. I guess. I don't <laughs> <laughs> it's just such a strange kind of, I don't know, notion. Um, and it was only X for like, I think it was 1971, two years later, when they changed it to R. Yep. Which was... The, I don't know if this was related to that, but that was the year Clockwork Orange came out, which was the next X-rated film to be nominated for Best Picture, right. and that's not X anymore. I don't know how long that was X. And I think it, that year, um, in 71, I think they changed the uh, the definitions of the ratings, because I think at the time of Midnight Cowboys release, an R, it was restricted to 16 years. It was 16 instead of 17, okay. and they upped it a year. But yeah, it's it's strange um, to think of that movie as rated X. And like um, Greetings, the Brian De Palma film, I believe is the first film that was rated X, nineteen sixty eight. And I'm not hundred percent on that. I've read that places, and I've also heard people say no, it's not. But I don't, I don't know what their sources were. <laughs> um, that also like today watching it, it's just I don't know. It's just this, like it's a carefree romp. That's not even. I don't know. It's not very explicit. So or what was? So what was the subject matter in that movie that was uh, deemed inappropriate? Uh, I mean, there is nudity. Um, there's no explicit sex. Um, there are. I mean, there is a character who pretends to be gay to get out of going to Vietnam. Hmm. But it's only in his like stereotypical mannerisms. It's not. There's not any like the movie doesn't sex deal with that on. kind of like subject in a, any kind of sort of I don't know realistic way. No, it's more. It's just like um, I don't know. It's just it's really uh, it's too comical, I guess. To like it, it doesn't. I mean, it takes certain things seriously. Um, I don't. Know, it's like a lot of early like early Brian De Palma comedies where it has a very strong like political bent but it's just very lighthearted at the same time i don't know i'm Read describing it poorly, <laughs> not allowed to watch it it's just strange like i imagine like if people 
at the time were like, I'm going to see this movie, Midnight Cowboy. It's about like a you know male prostitute. It's rated X. Oh yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna, like, I'm gonna get front row seats. I'm ready to see some action. And then they're like sorely disappointed because the movie's not that at all. Yeah. It's just weird. I guess that's why the triple X rating came about, probably because they're so like so people know this so that, is like you think rated X. No, no, no. That's not the real stuff. The real stuff is triple X rated. The um, the director was gay. Really, <laughs> I I did not yeah. know that. Um, how do you, how do you pronounce his name, Tim? Uh, well, I th- I would say John uh, Schlesinger. Schlesinger. Schle- uh, but maybe it's uh, Schlesing, Schlesh- maybe it's Inger and not Inger. I would say Inger, not Schlesinger. Schlesinger. Let's just call him John Schlesinger. We'll just say the director. The director. Um, I haven't seen a lot of his other films. Um, I saw um, The Day of the Locust that he did a few years later, which I thought was okay. Um, I don't know. Was he um, openly gay like when he made the movie? Or was it sort of... It was probably still in the time when, it, you know... It, he couldn't be like kinda... openly, openly gay people who worked with him do right he wasn't like going around like to magazines and stuff talking about it i don't think Mm. Um, but i mean he had like his next film was sunday bloody sunday which deals with homosexuality also so this was like maybe somewhat from his own kind of experience maybe not like you know he was doing yeah this um well, I mean, it's based on a novel. Right, it's based on, um, I guess, which, what we should say. But, but, like, I mean, I don't know, I think maybe um, at the time, maybe a heterosexual director might not uh, look at them in such a sympathetic light, maybe be a little more judgmental. I mean, it's weird reading a lot of the contemporary reviews of it and um, how often, well, the terms have changed over the years, and they keep saying, like, oh, it's a story about fairies in New York, or faggots in New York, and pansies, and it's like, okay, well, ease up. <laughs> <laughs> like, whoa, whoa okay, well, that's, uh, <laughs> yourself. But they're, these, whatever word they choose tends to be um, preceded by uh, pitiful or pathetic, and I'm like, well, yeah, they're not doing that great. They've got a hard life they're like starving pretty much but then like you look at other reviews of like films from like earlier around the same time and that's just that's the adjective that goes in front of whatever term they tend to use for homosexual like it's it's odd well it's 69 i think was 69 the year of stonewall the stonewall riots or was it 70 i don't i should know this when um yeah i don't know for sure but um but I mean this was you know this was the start of that time when it was things were starting to turn around. I mean it was a long struggle and they're not there yet I guess as far as being like everybody's okay with homosexuals. Yeah, it's still definitely an yeah. an issue. But, but that, I mean that was like around the time when people were like starting to like stand up for themselves and right. be like no, I'm not just going to be like some pitiful pathetic homosexual. I'm a proud homosexual. And it's I mean Rizzo and Joe Buck, like, aren't explicitly, and I don't even think really, I mean, thematically it's, you know, it's there, but, like, it's not even really sort of suggested that they are 
you know, in love with each other or yeah, there's no like physical uh, acts of love between them. Really, it's right. But there, there is love. There is, there is, love. and it's almost but in the same way that like you know you would with friends, you know, or yeah, or two people who are thrust into this sort of like desperate situation. Um, you know, you, you sort of become bonded. And they do start to take on characteristics of, like, the traditional uh, heterosexual couple, where Rizzo's staying home and making the food that Joe Buck goes at. It's almost like, right. even back to caveman days, Joe Buck is going out hunting, <laughs> and Rizzo's staying home to try and, like, that heat is it true, up in their yeah. pathetic kitchen. <laughs> I mean, it's, defi- like, it's definitely there. I mean, I, I think, like... They are de- depicted as this as a couple yeah. for sure, and it's kind of you know I mean in the way that like uh, Rizzo sort of uses the term faggot and sort of reacts when it's suggested that you know he might be uh, you know when when uh, Joe first comes to his apartment and he's like you don't look like a faggot and he's like what's that supposed to mean. Like in the in that sort of like way that he reacts, like you could sort of think like you know, I don't know, he might have those kinds of yeah. tendencies, but they're both like either unwilling to act on them or just don't want to admit it to themselves, or I don't know. It's ambiguous, and the thing is, I mean, like you know. I, all of human sexuality is ambiguous anyway. I mean, like there really isn't, it's not like, you know, you, you are either gay or straight. I mean, there's a lot of like middle ground there. And, uh, the film does deal with like, you know, as we talked about deliverance, um, like the sort of old fashioned notions of masculinity and like in the conversation that you were just talking about where he says, John Wayne, you're going to tell me he's a fag. Right. Right. And which this is, um, the year that this won Best Picture at the Oscars, John Wayne finally won. Well, not finally, but John Wayne won his be- his one and only uh, Best Actor Oscar, and he was up against both John Voight and Dustin Hoffman in the same category, which is ridiculous because Dustin Hoffman does a great job in it, but he's clearly the supporting role. I he comes yeah, who, into the uh, movie who, who twenty won, something minutes. Do you know who won the supporting actor that year? I uh, do not. I mean, his performance i was especially impressed with i mean i you know i mean i've seen dustin hoffman and things like the graduate which was all people knew him from at this time mm-hmm. also so people were like what is this guy and even like, later in life things like rain man where like you know he clearly he can like you know transform himself but this... and there's some there's a little bits of rain man in <laughs> in enrico salvatore rizzo yeah I, maybe <laughs> there's a, moments a little where he's there. got that voice and uh, yeah I don't know. but he really just transforms into this you know yeah. Very rat-like person. It's it's crazy. You can smell him from the screen. You don't even, like, just watching him. I didn't smell anything. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's you. Okay, I don't know. I, I could smell him from, you know, decades no, I Yeah, I, I, know it's, I know what you mean. I mean, he feels like he just crawled out of, like, you know, the New York City sewer. And like a rat. The whole, when they're at the party with, like, the Warhol people, like, he's just... So just, you don't want to touch him. <laughs> He's just in the middle of all these like, kind of faux the, glamorous people. Yeah, the be- the beautiful people. Yeah, uh, quote unquote. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, just, I mean, he did. He was a he was fantastic. In I mean, it is. Um, I guess a bit of a milestone that this film won Best Picture because it was you know like X rated and stuff, but. It was, I mean, it was kind of a weak year as far as the... I mean, there were other great films coming out, but not really nominated for Best Picture. It was up against, like, Hello, Dolly and um, Anne of a Thousand Days, which was, like, a bloated historical epic type thing, which they were still... Well, that and Hello, Dolly, they were, the, the studios were... They were still putting these movies out. People weren't very excited about them. But, <laughs> yeah. um, Z, which was a really good movie, but it was foreign so it won ended up winning best foreign language film but it didn't win best picture and then uh, the other one was butch cassidy and the sundance kid which hmm. also deals yeah it's, I was it's like a say, western with a very close yeah, that's, uh, that's, um homosocial relationship yeah that's, two that's very interesting which i i've never been a huge fan of that movie but um like i, I appreciate it for what it is but i just i could never really get into it i don't know and that's that movie also has a song in it, which is, I guess, like a pop song. Raindrops keep falling on my head. Yes. Um, yep. <laughs> so I guess Ebert was unhappy with both of those. Oh, I'm sure he was pissed. <laughs> um, but oh, oh, the end. The um, which yeah, and Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid um, had Paul Newman in it. Right, and there's a poster of Paul Newman. Yeah, which, oddly enough, I mean, like, Joe Buck seems to be somebody who's buying into the whole myth of, like, cowboys and stuff, but the poster is for the movie HUD. That I was gonna ask, I was, I made a mental note to ask you what the movie was, if you yeah, knew. Yeah, it's a, it's a Martin Ritt film from, I think, 63, and it was sort of one of many movies that were coming out in, like, the early 60s, which were about, like the modern West and the death of the cowboy myth and stuff like that. So it's almost like Joe Buck has gotten his idea of what the, what a cowboy is from movies that were about like, there are no cowboys anymore. It's all just a myth. And like, mm. I don't know. It's, it's yeah, that's uh, another level. To, and the poster is cool. ripped, which I, I mean, I don't know if that means anything, but I just thought like, that was like a he great sort of removed just, everything else, but the image of, yeah. And he's shirtless in that too. Right. Oh, in the poster? Yeah, uh, I, I don't think so. Oh. I thought it was like a picture of him without a shirt on. I'm not sure. But it is funny because, like, we're seeing, like, in that one, in that same shot, like, you know, the poster of, you know, he's removed everything but the image of Paul Newman. And yeah. then there's the topless girl picture. And it's like... The, on the other side, like, sort of on either side the of the Paul mirror. The Paul Newman poster is next to the mirror, and then in the mirror you see Joe Buck's face with the naked woman behind him, I think. Yeah, it's, yeah, right, right. And he's, you know, sort of stuck in the middle between both sort of images. I'm curious about, like, how the, uh, the movie differs from the, from the source material, the book, which is also called... Uh, Midnight Cowboy. Yeah. Um, I imagine in the book, like the all of the the flashbacks. I'm not sure if maybe it's like you know we are actually flashing back to scenes of his past. Um, I'm, I'd be curious just to see how much they sort of explicitly say about, I'm ass- about his past. I'm assuming they give more information just because in again some of the reviews I was reading. 
the reviewers seem to know more about me, and we we watched the same movie, or more more than me, and we watched then we watched the same movie. Like it's. Uh, yeah, you just said you <laughs> the think the reviewers don't... know more about me. I'm sorry, no, I'm the like, critics don't know anything about me. What? <laughs> um, they seem to know more about the movie, and we watched the same movie, and it's like, like um, and maybe there are just things that I'm not picking up on mm-hmm. that are subtly dropped. I mean, it's in definitely there. like after watching through it for the first time, like it's the kind of thing where I felt like I wanted to go back and watch it again yeah, because like, there there is so much just in the way that it is edited. Um, there's a lot to kind of piece together. Um, like, I, I don't... Past. There's the one <clears throat> scene when Joe Buck uh, is sort of dropped off with the woman he refers to as his grandmother. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's left there by two women. Right. And you don't know the situation, you know, like... But either the assumption the critics made or it says in the book... Um, it's he's the son of a woman who works in a defense plant. Well, he's wearing a uniform and drop so. and he's dropped off with um, a prostitute to be raised. And it's like, I didn't really get like, oh, she's a prostitute uh, necessarily, or just like, oh, she just felt like she's there was some strange sort of sexual. There's not a lot of boundaries in that right, house. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> He's in bed at one point between her and an elderly man. <laughs> like, yeah, a naked elderly man. And they, but it still seems so innocent. They're all yeah, just they're like all having like, a good time. Yeah, they're singing not, and laughing or whatever. Well, not not like oh, they're. <laughs> it's okay that they're having sex with a child. They're just having a good time. But no, like <laughs> that doesn't happen. I don't think. Um, no, they're just like playing non-sexually. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's the kind of thing where like you can take it. In the, you know, right. to mean different things. But a couple of the reviews seemed very definite about some things. So I'm thinking, like, they read I the I mean, book, the defense plant, they... that is too specific to... Like, it's possible that, like, oh, somebody who grew up decades before I did might be able to, like, look at a woman and be like, she works in a defense plant. Or something, like, maybe she was wearing something that I didn't catch. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, but... The idea that he might have been, like, raised by a prostitute would definitely suggest, like, oh, well, you know, like, when he gets out of the military, finds his um, so-called grandmother is dead, and he has nobody else in the world, sure, he'll be a prostitute. And, I mean, and just in the way that, like, he's so matter-of-fact and, like, doesn't even think about it as being, like, it's so natural to him, like, the idea of just being paid to have sex, that it's, like, he, it must have been going on, like, his whole life. Because he's just like, you know, he casually talks about it to his co-worker. He's like, yeah, you know, out in New York, they got these, the, a lot of women willing to pay for, you know, for that kind of thing. He's like, well, see ya, you know, I'm going off the... And, I lo- that and then he's just walking great. the streets just like, you know, <laughs> looking for the Statue of Liberty. And he's like, what? <laughs> and he, he just like, he just think, he thinks everyone's on the same page as him because yeah. <laughs> that's just all he's known. And I love the, the character of like the cook. In like the early scene, he's just like, okay, <laughs> like, and then there's that shot of like where he gets the postcard right. and he fills it out and he he thinks like, who would I even send yeah, it? Who would I pictures the cook being like, what the hell is this? Like, <laughs> yeah, and then like, just kind of throws it out. Like, oh yeah, that guy who used to work here. Why is he sending me a postcard? <laughs> which is am I the closest he had to a friend? Which is when you start to realize, well, he is alone yeah, in the he world. He has alone, no one. Yeah. Um, and like 
the way he words it when he's talking to Rizzo, like late, you, we find out we see him in his uniform sitting on the steps, fairly late in the film, I think. Mm-hmm. Or he's just like, oh, my grandmother didn't even tell me she died or something like that. Yeah, like, and a really weird kind of phrasing where you're like, wait a minute, huh? Like, <laughs> how dare she? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She didn't even tell me before she just dropped dead. <laughs> but, and like, that's the only, call. that one bit is the only inkling I think we get that he was even in the military. Yeah, but, where he's like, I mean, you see him when, when he's first dropped off, he's wearing like some sort of military uniform. And I I didn't know exactly what that was. Now, could we infer from this that he's a Vietnam vet? Because that's not something anybody ever talks about in relation to this movie. But, I mean, it never talks about Vietnam, I don't think, or anything like that. And um, But, I mean, if he was in the military, I, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I guess, I mean, that would have been what was happening at the time like it's very likely that even a cursory psychological examination of joe buck might make him unfit for service in vietnam i don't know how i mean he's not he's not really all there yeah i mean and when he's sitting on the steps in the uniform is it like he has just returned home presumably i think that's what it means when when he says that she didn't even tell i think he like was on his way home with every intention of going back to see his grandmother and, right, then, and then finds the, out she died while he was gone. Yeah. And no one, no one informed him. There was no one to inform him really. Mm-hmm. Especially if it wasn't even his real grandmother because there'd yeah, be no, no legal connection. Exactly. Or anything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, the more you really look at it, I mean, just the, it, the more sad it all really yeah. becomes. But the, uh, I mean, if he was a vet, it kind of ties in even more to a film that, um, the, another film about just someone being, like, almost completely alone in New York City, uh, which is Taxi Driver, from a few years later, mm-hmm. which also does not really show New York City in that great of a light. It's just a, a filthy place at that time, that whole decade. And these these are the films that, like... Not these specific... Well, Taxi Driver, but not Midnight Cowboy necessarily. But, like, when I was growing up, my image of New York City... Right, it was, was like this sort of old... terrifying cesspool of humanity. Well, I mean, a lot of... Th- like, the, the, the city really kind of... It, my understanding is that it cleaned up considerably through the 90s. Like, yeah. especially, like, Times Square and stuff like that. Um, so, I mean, everything... All the reference, I mean, we had growing up was that it was just this, you know dirty dark dingy horrible place yeah um i mean i've been there a few times uh like since then and you know seems okay yeah I mean, no one touched yeah. me inappropriately or mugged me but um yeah. yeah and i actually wondered if that is why the the line you know i'm walking here i'm walking here like i thought maybe like was this one of the sort of first movies to kind of portray that like new york in a more kind of realistic sort of way where it's like we're seeing like you know the way that new york is actually sort of talk and and react to things i mean i don't know so i don't know of any other movie um that kind of portrayed it like that earlier oh one thing i wanted to say um about uh 
Dustin Hoffman's character. This is a total, not really to do with the movie, but okay. are you familiar with the Muppets? I am, and the Muppets Take Manhattan is one of the movies that scared me in relation to the city growing up. Well, there is a character in Muppets Take Manhattan. Yes, there is. Called Rizzo the Rat, and um, <laughs> I feel like, it, it, I mean, he was named after Dustin Hoffman's character. Would you gather? Would you? It makes think sense. That's a, a appropriate I, I, assumption. I think I'd back you up on that. Yeah, that's all I wanted to bring up. <laughs> when I, when I finally did uh, get to New York City uh, as a grown person, and I ate in a Greek restaurant, um, there were no rats. So I guess it did improve at least since Muppets Take Manhattan. Yeah, because I mean, back then in like 1981, I guess you know there were rats all in the kitchen, like making pancakes putting their feet all over the butter you know doing all sorts of nasty stuff back there it's a gross movie disgusting <laughs> if you want to see the real new york go <laughs> watch muppets take manhattan <laughs> get a glimpse behind the curtain behind your mickey mouse <laughs> facade <laughs> um yeah, I don't know much of... Uh, I mentioned earlier, um, I'd only really seen one other uh, John uh, Schlesinger, Schlesinger. Schlesinger film, um, and it was after this. So I'm not familiar with like his uh, the work he did in England. Like, um, like I've heard of Billy Liar, and like I, that was that's like one of those like British New Wave films that um, you know had a big influence on you know what people would call like New Hollywood films. Um, so I don't really know like how maybe like experimental his style was, but there definitely are aspects in this film of like, uh, like avant-garde films. Oh yeah, definitely. Including people like in, in small roles, like from that scene, like the party, I mean the people who like invite them to the party, like Viva, one of the Warhol superstars. uh, uh, Gretel was credited yeah the actress's name was viva and i'm like okay so that's just her i guess yeah and um you know they go to this party and there's like uh paul morrissey is there who he's in the he's in yeah the who movie? directed some like Warhol film he did flesh for frankenstein right, Blood for Blood dracula, dracula yeah. heat trash all these and um taylor mead uh who worked with warhol and he also worked with robert downey senior on some of his early underground films and um so, you know, it almost like, I don't know. It, it, I don't know if he's paying homage to this scene because like, or to the, well, yeah, to the scene, not <laughs> to the scene in the, in scene. the scene. Yeah, right. Um, because it doesn't, I mean, they're not painted in a great light. They're shown as very like, well, I don't know if pretentious people, um, but. I think, I mean, it was, I think it was sort of like lightly poking fun at the scene with the girl mm. who's like, heroin is like death. You know, it's, it's nothing. It's it's like nothing. It's like, have you tried heroin? Yes, I tried heroin. It's like nothing. It's like death. <laughs> you know, like, just this nonsense. That, you know, it's, it's, and the guy's hair is tendrils growing into the right, stars. Right, yeah. So I think it's, it's, it's poking fun at that whole thing and creating this whole party to, like, film this sort of sort of documentary thing that they're mm-hmm. doing. Um, but I know that um, John Voight, uh, for the past however long, maybe a couple decades or so, uh, has been, you know, like an ultra right-wing conservative activist. Right, that's, yeah. And um, he looks back with regret on some of, like, what he calls his, like, 
counterculture roles and like revolutionary films. But I I don't think that this film really presents um, the '60s counterculture in a positive light. And a lot of the films of like the New Hollywood era don't. They're lumped in with like oh hippies and stuff mm-hmm. because like you know some of the filmmakers, especially like Dennis Hopper, mm-hmm. uh, like came out of that scene sort of or really involved to a degree in that scene and at least definitely you know they a lot of them really loved using drugs to excess yeah especially Dennis Hopper <laughs> um but you know if I mean you said so we're watching Easy Rider next yep, no, like we'll, a... we'll see in that that it doesn't really paint uh hippies uh in like a positive light a lot of these films are just like dirty fake people mm. kind of well, that's a pretty good uh, segue to talk about next week, which will be Easy Rider, also from 69. So, uh, yeah, I enjoyed Midnight Cowboy. Um, hopefully, uh, I haven't seen Easy Rider. Have you seen Easy Rider? I have, um, but I'm not sure how I'm going to watch it again. I don't, I don't own it. You don't um, own it. And I don't own it. I don't. Well, it might be on Netflix. I'm not sure. I'll have to check. Probably. I mean, it's out there. If if all else fails, we'll go to the library and rent it. Because <laughs> blockbusters. What, what not is this? 1969 anymore. all over again? Go to the library. <laughs> we we no longer have any uh, video rental places around here. Um, so yeah, the library I guess is the best bet. <laughs> if we can't get it on the computer, which would probably be yeah more convenient. So yeah. So until then. Um, Thanks for joining us for another exciting episode of Talking Movies. I'm Max. I'm Tim. See you next time. I'm going where the sun keeps shining through the pouring rain. Going where the weather suits my clothes. Banking off of the northeast winds, sailing on summer breeze. Skipping over the ocean like a stone Everybody's talking at me Can't hear a word they're saying Only the echoes of my mind I won't let you leave my love behind I won't let you leave